Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, cretins. <laughs> uh, John, 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 good to see you again. You're looking, you too, uh, my friend. You're looking uh, quite good. You're, Thank you. Uh, apparently, uh, isolation helps helps you. Yes, yes, I'm here uh, isolated at about 9,000 feet over the Great Lakes, as you can see from the window. Um <laughs> But well, yeah, uh, how's, how are your parents doing? There was a lot of flooding up where they're, they're at. Yeah, yeah, that was the strangest thing. Um, what day was that? It was Wednesday evening, and out of the blue, my my sister texted me. It's like the dam is broke. My, you know, our parents have to evacuate. And my my parents are, you know, they're uh, eighty five and ninety five years old. I mean, uh, move, you know, evacuating quickly isn't easy. But um, fortunately. Uh, there was a neighbor or a friend from the church took them in on the other side of town away from the evacuation zone. And the way that the dams uh, broke, two of them broke, um, and the way the river flooded, it's not probably not going to reach their house. So, um, but, you know, I want to give a big shout out to all the Michigan brewers around uh, Edenville and, and Midland County, um, you know, so, uh, really feel for you and, uh, you know, hope you're able to, uh, you know, recover everything in your houses because uh, it's a, some, just some of the most devastating flooding I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a real shame. Yeah, uh, I, I can't imagine what it's like to uh, have to be through that uh, along with the coronavirus and everything else that's been yeah. going on. What a crazy year. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's been adding up. Well, and speaking of crazy, or, you know, <laughs> yes. our good friend John Blickman. Indeed. He is a wild and crazy guy. Uh, That's well, right. I think of all the people I know in, uh, in brewing, uh, he is one of the, he's, he is truly a character. Yeah. And in part because he's uh, such a smart guy, he's, he's very clever and funny to be around. Uh, and he makes great uh, brewing equipment. He uses that that uh, giant brain of his for for the good of all all brewers instead of uh, for evil. And so uh, uh, you can you can you can trust him to uh, really turn out some great stuff. Um, and he's been supporting this program uh, forever, pretty much since the beginning. And he pays for it, so you guys don't have to. So. I would appreciate if you could go to uh, our, you know, BlickmanEngineering.com, check out all the great stuff they have there. And then uh, possibly, you know, send them an email. Send an email to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. 
and just say, hey, thanks for supporting the program. I like listening to it. These guys are interesting, funny, whatever. Uh, thanks for doing it. So if you could do that, we would appreciate it greatly. Yep. Um, today, uh, through the kindness of their hearts, the Cane Island Ailers have invited us to kind of join their homebrew meeting and do a, uh, a little uh, presentation here. And it was uh, Matt Harold that uh, actually asked, he said, uh, you know, could you do some uh, talking about uh, brewing for competition? And what, uh, you know, hints you might have for that, because uh, that is one of the things I did. But the Cane Island Ailers, there are no slouches as far as it comes to uh, uh, competition. How uh, non-slouching they, are they? <laughs> Uh, they, they, oh. in 2019, uh, did quite a bit, uh, runner up for the Lone Star Circuit Club, Club of the Year. Um, Justin and Matt, uh, did quite well as well. And then, uh, three programs, five best to show beers and meads, 159 medals, uh, over wow. the course of 2019, which is, uh, you know, 67 gold, 57 silver, 37 bronze. That's a substantial number of, uh, medals in there. Indeed. And, uh, you know, Justin and Matt seem uh, like they really are cranking out some fine beers uh, to be the, the brewer of the year, the agent of the year. So uh, I think, you know, uh, I'm not sure that they need our tips. I think, <laughs> I think they, they may have uh, all that they need uh, already, already in-house. But, uh, you know, like anybody, I think, you know, you take a great athlete – and they're always interested in learning some new new tricks, you know, just, That's right. you know, or hearing what everybody else is doing, watching tape on somebody else, just to see if there might be one last little thing they can get to, you know, push them over the top to always, you know, win the championship. So, uh, you know, kudos to them for setting this up. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Why don't we take a short break? And when we come back, we'll get into some of uh, Matt's questions and some of our answers. We'll be back right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all green brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking with the uh, 
the Kane Island Ailers were actually part of their uh, their meeting uh, today, and uh, we're talking about uh, uh, how you might uh, improve your your chances in competition. So one of the uh, the first questions uh, posed was, uh, "What difference between brewing for yourself versus brewing for competition?" Um, I look at it this way. Brewing for yourself, you're the only person you need to impress is yourself. You're the only person that needs to be happy. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're sharing it with, uh, you know, your loved ones or your neighbors or something like that, and you want them to be happy too, but that's different than brewing for competition because your, your neighbors, your, your family, they're not going to tell you how much your beer sucks. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they'll, they'll tell you your beer sucks all the time because they're jealous or something like that. But uh, so you can't really trust what those people are saying. And you shouldn't really worry about what they're saying anyways. If you like it, that's all that matters. You know, just be happy with your beer. Brew the best beer that you like and that you enjoy. And uh, that's, you know, what brewing for yourself is all about. Um Brewing for competition, you're really trying to impress. Uh, if you're trying to win, um, you're you're really trying to impress someone else. You're trying to make someone else think it's the greatest beer in the world, and that person doesn't know who you are, doesn't have any idea, you know, who brewed it, and that's you know the important thing. You need to uh, make sure that they are, you know just blown away by your beer without knowing you. So that's kind of the difference between brewing for yourself versus brewing for competition. And brewing for competition can be a joy, but it also, you know, if that's all you do, it can kind of suck the life out of you. Well, I think it has to be done with a certain amount of calculation. I mean, you know, beer, um, beer uh, competitions are like dog competitions. You've got to enter the right dog. You know, you got to enter the right category with your beer. Um, I've judged so many competitions where you get an outstanding beer, but it's in the wrong category. You know, and you, you know, sometimes it's a pale ale in an IPA category or vice versa. Or sometimes, strangely, it can be a Hefeweizen in the uh, English bitter category. It's like, how did that get here? Um, but, you know... When you brew a beer for competition, pay very close attention to the category that you intend to, to enter it in. I mean, um, some I know a lot of people may brew something, think it's really good, and think, okay, what can, what category can I enter this in? Um, it's probably not going to do well if it doesn't fit the category squarely. Yep. Good points. Uh, let's see. A strategy for categories to enter. Okay. So, you know, one of the things uh, I've always advocated is uh, ask other people uh, what your, what category they think it is. You know, I hand you a beer and just say, you know, John, taste this beer. Yeah. Yeah. What, what beer do you think it is? And then, you know, whatever category that person says, you know, maybe that's, if it's a different category than you thought you were entering, maybe that's, you know, uh, a bit of, uh, 
advice as to what what panel to enter. So pre-screening is is always a good idea. I like to do that. It, it has its limits though because it can steer you away from entering. You know, it just depends on the quality of the people on your pre-screening panel. You know, if they're mm-hmm. good people or not. Right. Um, you know, whether it'll sync up with the judges that you're you're uh, trying to enter in. Um, that you know, it could be good, it could be bad. And one of the other things I've noticed over the years was there's a regional um, uh, tilt to uh, judging where people in a certain area expect a beer to be a certain way or they have, you know, a fondness for sweeter beers or more caramel. I noticed that, especially in the Midwest, when it came to things like pale ale. IPA, they wanted to see that caramel and that sweetness. Whereas on the on the West Coast, it was always right. a drier, crisper, lighter uh, malt character. Right. And so you had to tailor your beers for the region. And so you know it's the same on your pre-screening panels. If you can get panels of people that are in the area where the judging is going to happen, uh, that's helpful. It's like the the nationals. You got to think when you're entering the uh, NHC. Um, you know, where is the final going to be held? So some people, they will brew a beer (laughs) for their local entry area for the first round. And then they may re-brew some of them for the second round for if, if it's in an area where your, um, uh, where the taste buds are maybe slightly different or the, the profile of what people expect out of beer is slightly different. I mean, we try to make sure all the judges are judging to the same exact, you know, style. But the fact is, there's regional differences. Um, yeah. So being able to, to to do that can be real helpful. Yeah. Matt Harold has a good question. He says, I've heard that you should always lean on the upper end of gravity and IBUs and ABV within the style. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I've said that in the past. I think for um, for almost all styles, yes, that that tends to be true because with higher gravity, with higher you know everything comes a bit more flavor and a bit more character. Right. A bit more character gives you a little bit of an edge, you know. In a flight of thirteen beers, you know, the more flavor for flavorful beer is going to stick out, and yeah. you know give you give you a bit of an edge i think yeah i I, in general i agree with that um and i and in general i would encourage that i guess or i wouldn't discourage it as a strategy for winning competitions however if you take it too far uh, i know of plenty of instances when we're judging and Mm -hmm. uh we will you know point that out you know hey this beer it's a little big for style or it's yeah. a little too bitter for style. Um, and, yeah, you know, I point that out quite a bit myself. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you've got, when you've got experienced judges um, that, you know, know a style well, uh, that will, that kind of thing will be called out. And um, you, you, you know, they will lean on the more middle of the style, the better balanced beer. And I think better, best balance is the key. If you can bump up the gravity and the bitterness and the flavor a little bit, but still keep it all very well balanced, that beer will probably stick out 
you know, mm-hmm. is the best. Sure. Um, but if it's, if it's simply a higher alcohol or simply more bitter than the others in the flight, it'll probably get knocked down. Well, and then it also brings up, uh, let's see, uh, other strategies, flooding, um, cross-category entering. Um, flooding, uh, a, a category, for example, this works really well when there are like five sub-styles in a category, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is how I always won like every medal in, in Scottish ales oh. is because I'd win, you know, gold, silver, and bronze because it was a category with like five styles to it or four styles to it. And so I'd enter one in each and, uh, you know, okay. place in all of them. Uh, so uh, the categories where there's more than three sub-styles, that works really well for that. Uh, you know, and same for the, 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 the competition uh, as a whole. You know, you... Uh, miss all the shots you don't take. So it's the same thing here. If you don't enter a beer, you don't have a chance of winning a medal. So uh, the more you can enter, the better. Of course, it has a cost. Um, so that may not be, uh, you know, something that's feasible, but it certainly helps your chances the more entries you have. Um, as far as cross-category entering, you know, uh, entering, I, I guess, the same beer in other categories this can help in some of those categories where the definition's a little wishy-washy or tends to overlap. Um, but I would say, you know, something, and people point out uh, porters and stouts. What's the difference between a porter and a stout? Well, it's like they're two different things. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, uh, something that makes a good porter doesn't necessarily make a good stout. And something that makes a good stout doesn't make a good porter. If you have a beer that really seems like it crosses between the two, it probably its chances of placing in one category or the other is probably pretty minimal. So you have to kind of watch for that. Um, it's possible. There's, there's other categories where that works. It, it generally tends to be where um, uh, your, you know, it's, it's ill-defined categories or categories that seem very loosely defined, you know, so it tends to be a lot of, uh, you know, um, maybe Belgians or, or things like that, that, that have that kind of, uh, uh, opportunity, should we say, Mm -hmm. uh, which styles are the best for the cross category entry? Um, I would say, let's see here. What did I put in my notes? Um, you know, the, the, the Scottish categories, right. Um, yeah. A lot of the English ones, uh, you know, like the stouts where it's, um, again, like John was saying, if you have really good judges, they're going to know the difference between, you know, a sweet stout, a dry stout, uh, you know, an oatmeal stout, stout yeah. like foreign extra, you know, the differences are kind of obvious, but they're still pretty close together. And I could see, you know, something like that. Um, and like I said before, the the Belgian, the Belgian ales tend to have... Um, you know, what's the difference between a triple and a golden strong? Um, you know, a lot of times people will miss that as judges or, you know, there's almost some crossover in some of the categories. And I think that there is an opportunity to kind of either, you know, flood a category or, uh, you know, cross over into other, other styles. 
Uh, what do you do with all this beer once you stock up for a competition year? Wow. <laughs> um, the, uh, and how best to store it if you don't have a cellar? I mean, that's, you know, one, you, you want to keep it cold. You want to keep it in the dark. You want to keep it, you know, uh, well-maintained. Uh, I think, you know, back in the day, I, I took a, a storage shed that I had. I lined it with insulation. I took a, an air conditioning unit and uh, fiddled with it to make it, you know, produce a 34-degree air. And I built my own, you know, walk-in. And that worked really well. I was able to store quite a lot of beer in there. And if you keep beer cold, if you package it right, low oxygen, it's clean, it's been fermented right, you package it well, you can leave it in there for a year at, in refrigeration and it tastes, you know, just as fresh as just about anything else anybody else is entering. So I was able to build up a lot of different styles that way. And one of the things, uh, you know, that uh, you can do is brew all the beers that have a long shelf life to them that people may uh, be tasting, you know, their, their familiarity with the style tends to be more um, aged examples. So a lot of Belgian beers, British beers here in the U.S., Belgian beers, British beers, uh, German beers, we tend to get a lot of aged examples here. And so when we do, uh, the judges are kind of calibrated to these aged examples. So those, you know, there's beers that are much more durable. A lot of the, uh, the Lambics, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the big Belgians, um, some of the lagers, things like that. You can, and especially if you can store them cold, you've got years that you can, you can enter, you know, you brew a great <laughs> example of, uh, you know, a barley wine and oh my God, it's perfect. And you've got, you know, five, 10 gallons and you bottle it all into competition bottles. You know, you have, uh, I think, you know, I had a barley wine that I, I brewed or a few barley wines that I brewed and then I just bottled them all up. And then over the course of like five years or so, seven years, I think I entered them every year and uh, I drink some of them, but uh, you know, it was pretty much a guaranteed win if you wanted to, <laughs> if you wanted to get points for something. So, um, you know, that's a pretty good strategy. Uh, so I would brew all those things first and I'd brew them in volume. You know, I'd set yourself up someplace to storm where they're cool and uh, don't get, you know, sunlight, don't, don't get disturbed. And then, uh, uh, and have a consistent temperature and then uh, brew, you know, a bunch of that stuff, store that first. And then the, the lighter stuff, the stuff that needs to be fresh to do well in competition, things like IPAs, um, uh, you know, a lot of the lighter stuff, the smaller beers, those, uh, you know, you brew fresh, you know, to, to land right at the competition time. And then, uh, you know, enter all those in, mix in some of your, your stash of, of winners and, uh, you know, load up that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One, one, uh, addition there is, uh, if you don't have a cellar and you don't have a walk-in cooler, um, I think a chest freezer is probably the most economical choice of, uh, you know, in terms of volume and so on and cost 
for you know long-term storage of beer. Um, you can put a temperature controller on it and and get it down to like that 34, 35 degrees where you know beer will keep for a long time. Yeah, that's a good point. And when when I first set up Heretic, we were sharing a building with a, a friend of mine, and there was no refrigerated storage whatsoever. So I took a, a section of the the building. And I, I bought some uh, foam board, some two-inch foam board, and I put it together with tape across, across the opening of the section. I cut a door into it, and then I took a, uh, you know, a little window AC unit. Again, I yep. put that in. I, I bypassed the uh, – I think I took the thermostat out and reset it. Or um, you also need to remove the freeze sensor. But I uh, got it to produce you know, cold air. And it's pretty cheap. So you yep. could, you know, if you can find a cheap little window AC unit, buy some foam board, throw it together. You don't even need, doesn't even need structural, you know, you just have a foam board on the bottom and just foam board all around. And then you can stack your beer in there and just have a cooling unit. Um, uh, or, you know, maybe you duck something off from in your house. I don't know. Some way <laughs> against some cold air in there. Or, you know, people, I've seen people cut holes in like uh, the wall of a kegerator and just put a fan on it and just blow some cool air in there and keep that, you know, the colder you keep it, the, the better it's going to store, the longer it's going to store, the better chance you have. And the, you know, it's very difficult to build up, you know, 20 or 30 entries for a competition. But, you know, by doing that, you should be able to. Um, every 10 degrees C doubles the rate of staling. So, uh, you know, you... If you if you keep it nice and cold, refrigerate you know cool refrigeration temperatures, it'll it'll stay stable for a long time. All right, uh, we need to take another short break, and when we get back, we'll continue with uh, brewing for competition uh, right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're enjoying uh, enjoying some beers, enjoying uh, talking about uh, brewing competitions. Yep. And uh, uh, Matt, uh, Jamil, a uh, yeah. qu- question came in from the chat. Uh-huh. What's the most number of entries you've put into one competition? Gosh, I don't know. Um, would have to go back into the spreadsheets I used to keep. I think, <laughs> I think, um, I think I had 20 something one time. I don't wow. think I've done more than that. I think it's for the nationals. I think it was yeah. second round of the nationals. I had 20 something one year. Dang. Yeah. Well, I remember there was a couple of years there where with, when you won the Ninkasi that, uh, you know, every other, every other win was, a. Uh, Jamil Zanishev. Jamil Zanishev. Yeah, I got so. some I got some big points. Yeah, you <laughs> did. Well, and I don't remember which ones I won, but I remember the first one, first uh Ninkasi I won at the Nationals was in Las Vegas. And it was oh, that yeah. thing I was talking about earlier where you know, if you have uh if the judging's in your area, you've got a a, a bit of an advantage of people from across the country because it's a judge pool that you've already, you know, 
uh, you know, tested your metal against, you know, you've been entering beers and competitions that they've judged, uh, you know, for a long time. In that case, it was a lot of people from around the area, but and I'm not saying people know your beers and somehow are, you know, favoring you. It's just that we tend as judges to talk together, drink together and, and discuss beers and examples and say, well, yeah, that's a good example. That's not a good example. Um, you know, so that can, you know, can be an issue. Um, so when you have that, that advantage, you know, um, enter as much as you can, because that's your chance, you know, yep, <laughs> that's your yep. chance to win. Uh, let's see here. Uh, when should you pull a beer from competition? You know, the first bad score sheet or third, you know, I don't know if it's the score sheets that, you know, you should rely on a hundred percent. You need to kind of read between the lines on score sheets. Sometimes what I would do is, you know, out of a set of like three score sheets, if, if two of them sound insane, you know, just throw those two out, you know, ignore those numbers, you know, put a little uh, red flag on those, you know, you have to kind of get a sense. Sometimes it takes a few times entering a beer, uh, you know, and you get, you know, like 10 sheets in your hand, you can see trends and you can, you know, look at the data that way. You can say, well, you know, seven out of 10 are saying that it's a little too dark. It's like, you know, and it seems to be part of what's keeping it from meddling. So I better back off on the color, you know, but, you know, half of them are saying it's not roasty enough. It's like, okay, so I need to have the roasty flavor while reducing the color. You know, it's, it becomes like a, a little game of, you know, what's valid data in the, that you're getting and what is kind of, you know, nonsense. And also, you know, it's, it's also based off of what you think about the beers. You know, you have to kind of get a sense from yourself, whether something's an award winner or not, be honest with yourself. But, you know, you shouldn't, if you, if you believe something is really well done and it's just being misunderstood, perhaps it's in the wrong category. You know, is it, mm -hmm. you know, this beer that you're going to pull, if it's really well brewed, maybe it's just not found the right category. Um, yeah. If it's poorly brewed, well, then you should pull it. But if it's really well brewed and for some reason it's not scoring well or not placing, sometimes it's just, again, right day, right circumstances or, or flight order. Um, you know, when you're doing IPAs, things like that, yeah. you know, yeah. boy, if you're at the tail end, buried in the middle, you know, you're not going to do really well. Um, right. So sometimes it's that. Uh, so you just have to kind of, you know, play the numbers. Yep. Yep. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm judging, if I taste a beer that seems to, you know, be out of category or fit another category better, I try to tell that to the, to the brewer, um, you know, say it's, it's really well brewed, but it's too big for style or it would be fit better, you know, in this category than this category. Um, again, trying to give that feedback so that they can, you know, enter it in the right category and rather than just pulling it. Um, yeah. But, you know, if a beer's flawed, badly oxidized, contaminated, um, something weird going on, um, diastatic or, you know, various flaws that are obvious, then, 
you know, the score sheet should say so. And, and that's, that's a red flag to pull it. Mm -hmm. Well, again, you know, you can have one or two judges that say, oh yeah, this is contaminated and horrible and, you know, they're just wrong, (laughs) you know, and it's fine. And you have to kind of, you know, get a, get a sense of that. Uh, but if you keep entering it and everybody says, yeah, this is contaminated, well, then that's your issue. Um, so it's kind of, you know, just, just based on numbers. All right, what can you do to set yourself apart at the judging table? Uh, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, uh, higher gravity or something like that. But I think one of the things that people often fail to, and it shocks me that people fail to do, is put their beer in a new, uh, you know, clean bottle of the appropriate size and style. You know, it's fine, you know, in small competitions where, you know, there isn't a lot of entries to reuse bottles. And, but I've, I've seen, you know, weird like uh, bottles with a stopper and a rubber band and, you know, bits of dirty label all over it on, you know, in the nationals. And I'm like, why in the world, you know, if you're, and the judges are told not to, uh, you know, focus on the, uh, the bottle, the packaging, you know, there's, there is like a, a thing for, you know, appropriate fill level and all that nonsense, but you know, it's supposed to have no score, but I tell you, it affects people's perception of what the beer is going to taste like. It shouldn't, but it does. They cannot dissociate themselves from one from the other. And so, you know, you send in a bottle with a bunch of old labels stuck on it and, uh, you know, or some, you know, jelly jar, you know, <laughs> full, half full of beer. It's like, well, you're, you're, you're going to affect your chances of winning. Same goes for, um, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, you also want to, uh, beyond that, you want to get uh, the appropriate uh, uh, color uh, and head retention, carbonation. You want it to look uh, good going into the glass. So when they first look at it, that affects the judges too. It's supposed to be a tiny bit of the score, but I can't tell you the number of times somebody thought a beer was too dark or too light. And so the whole beer tasted bad. It wasn't a style just because of that one thing. So you got to be, you got to be careful about that as well. I think that's one of the things you really can do. Oh, John, I think uh, you're muted or lost your connection there. Let me check. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Don't send in tiny bottles. I mean, I've been in several competitions <laughs> where, you know, you, yeah, you'll get this. In a thimble full. Well, yeah. Or you'll get a little six ounce or 10 ounce bottle sent in. And sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's a little off, but it's hard to adequately judge a small bottle. Um, you know, people are getting tiny pours. Um, and then you'll say, well, you know, maybe sometimes there's a problem with that particular bottle. Did they send in, can we get another bottle, please? And they said, no, they only sent in one or they only sent in two. My goodness, you know, you've paid your money to enter this competition. Send in all three bottles. Make sure that they're standard size. Um, because 
you may be selling yourself short. Well, that's a, that's a good point too. I think uh, if you're, if you're entering competition, you, you should be entering something that you think is going to win. If you think you're going to win, well then, you know, make sure you send in however many bottles they say uh, because there is, you know, a best of show round. Yeah. Right? And I can't tell you the number of best of show beers that really couldn't make it over the hump because they only sent in, you know, one bottle for a two bottle competition or a three bottle competition. And so the, the best of show judges are getting just like a, a couple of drops in each cup of warm, flat beer. It's like, yeah. Yeah, sorry, you're not going to get best of show. Right. So pre- you pretty much limited yourself there from winning. And the other thing is, you know, if they're saying 12 ounce bottles or 12 to 14 ounce bottles, don't send in like a 64 ounce, you know, milk jug of beer. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I've seen these giant bottles come in and it's like, well, that's not necessarily a good thing either. Um, You know, if you're going to take the, the, the competition thing seriously, you need every last detail to be perfect. I, I used to, um, uh, I remember for the the Las Vegas NHC, I mean, I live up in Northern California, and that was in Las Vegas, and uh, I packed, I, I bought a um, uh, an igloo marine cooler, you know, one of those giant, like, 100-quart ones, or 120-quart ones, yeah. and I packed all my, because I had 20-some-odd entries, and you need, like, three bottles, you know, per, and uh, so I put them all in, you know, nice and tight. I taped that up with some ice packs and I shipped the entire thing to Las Vegas. And I figured, well, when I'm in Las Vegas, uh, I'm driving Las Vegas, I'll pick it up and I'll, you know, just drive it back with me home and I've still got my nice cooler. Well, (laughs) I got there and uh, it was Michael Ferguson. He was working at a uh, (laughs) casino down there. I mean, a brewery down there. And, uh, all the, the entries were going there. Then I, I showed up to pick it up. He was like, oh, he's like, that was like the one thing I was going to keep. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, you know, I set my beer in a nice insulated chest, you know, so it was cold. When it got there, I, I asked the, uh, the organizers later, I'm like, you know, how was the beer when you got it? They go, oh, it's still like perfectly cold. And like it went, you know, it was cold when we got it. It went into the cold storage, cold. It's cold the whole time. You know, and again, that gives you an edge on, you know, the, the, how good your beer is going to be. You know, yeah. and we think about it and go, well, it's not that important. Well, I'll ask you this. Which beer do you think is going to do better? A beer that is, you know, an IPA that's one week old, IPA that's four weeks old. Is there going to be a difference? That's yeah, probably not a huge difference, you know, if everything was done properly. But, um, you know, side by side, you know, which one are you going to prefer? It's a subtle difference, but people, you know, a lot of people with some good palates can pick that stuff out and may prefer the one that's a little fresher, may prefer the one that's a little older. That's, that's the problem. But uh, that's, you know, another one of those little key things that, uh, can really, really make a difference to people. Um, We've got some right. good questions here in the chat, Jamil. All right. <clears throat> well, um, and uh, let's, let's do this. Okay. We can, uh, I can stop sharing here and we can go back to uh, the whole 
the whole thing, the whole shebang. Oh, okay. Very good. All right. I'll say, all right. Uh, questions. And yeah, people can unmute too if they want. Yeah. James asks, uh, thoughts on bottle conditioning versus forced carbonation or beer gun. Are the regular 12-ounce bottles capable of holding the pressures needed for the higher CO2 volumes of Belgian beers? Ooh, you know, good question. They max out um, kind of around the three, three and a half. It depends on how thick they are. They okay. will handle it, but it's very delicate, and they will shatter with the slightest tap. So I wouldn't do it, uh, but they'll, they'll hold a surprising amount of, of pressure. Um, but more and, fragile. Yeah, you'll see some that are so thin that I wouldn't trust them to hold two and a half volumes. Yeah. But, you know, the difference between two and a half, three and a half volumes isn't that much. I, I mean, it is, but in, the, in terms of packaging, the packages are meant to hold, uh, you know, more than, you know, the two and a half volumes that we normally charge a, uh, uh, you know, a thin 12-ounce bottle to. They'll hold three for sure, um, you know, but the higher it goes, the more risk you're taking. So you don't necessarily need to get the really heavy-duty uh, glass, but you can find 12-ounce uh, bottles, and you'll see some are super thin and light, and some are quite thick. Um, just go for the, the thicker ones, and you should be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go hey, ahead. Uh, this is Matthew. Um, just a quick question about the small bottle um, discussion you all had. Does that really apply to, to beer or, or what about mead? Because there's a lot of competitions where they'll allow small bottles for mead just because it's so expensive and, you know, right. I, I make small batches of mead. Does that rule, do you think, do you think you gain an advantage by having a larger bottle of mead in a competition? Well, I, I think it depends on, you know, how many bottles they're asking for. If they're asking for one bottle, and they have a best of show round and everything else, I'd go with a larger bottle size. I wouldn't go to a 750 mil, but, you know, I'd, I'd go up to 12 ounces instead of 7 ounces. Mm -hmm. Or 16, um, yeah. Yeah, and then um, on, but if they're asking for three or four bottles, I think a 7 ounce is, is plenty appropriate because you're, you're assuming you're going to have three judges. Uh, a lot of times they only do two now, uh, but it may be as yep. many as four. With four judges, they're still getting close to two ounces a piece, uh, so I think a seven is appropriate. Um, so yeah, I could I could see doing that on meads. Um, mm -hmm. It's just uh, it depends on how many bottles they're asking for overall, I guess. Again, you gotta assume you're gonna win best of show, so yeah. that's right. <laughs> Want to make sure you have a bottle for that too. Uh, Peter Simmons asks, um, he's talking about carbonation says it's a big problem in australia um uh, pete can you elaborate on this well because they're upside down you see and so <laughs> the bubbles are going it right along out. the wrong way they're going anti-clockwise yes <laughs> yeah um I, if there was when you were talking about um when the beers are at the table uh under under carbonation usually uh, the over carbon right ones you don't end up with much beer anyway uh the the undercarbonated ones dependent on style are, are a real issue but the question that did strike me because it was a problem we had here last year is that somebody wanted to enter uh cans into our new south wales competition 
and our rules only permitted bottles and our rules are not the same as the US rules uh, and that posed quite a big issue for us because what do you do about cans uh, how do you deal with best of show so uh, our uh, competition organizing uh, body the AABC decided uh, for this year uh, it would be containers of 500 mil up to 500 mil so okay. yeah, which allowed oh, cans right so I, what I was curious about is is what what did you think about entering a beer in a can because there's a lot of a lot of these fairly not that I can afford it but there are there are relatively cheap canning machines available now to homebrewers Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, one of the, the uh, issues with cans in competition was that people were, uh, you know, competitions were opening bottles, they would pour a portion of it for the judges, and then they'd recap it in case more was needed, right? Mm-hmm. They needed to re-pour or something like that. And with cans, you can't, you don't have that ability to recap it. And so that was kind of one of the concerns. The other concern was, you know, you, when you get in thousands of bottles, uh, when you have, you know, case boxes that are reusable to put all the bottles in, that's why they want certain sizes. So they all fit in there and the cases can be stacked because sometimes you need to take room at a brewery or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's one of the issues. And then cans kind of, they have a different diameter, becomes a whole nother issue. So that's one of the reasons that they don't want cans. Uh, but I think, you know, people need to adjust. Um, I don't see anything wrong with entering cans. Uh, and if somebody enters a can and it can't be reclosed, it's just going to have to sit open until, you know, the end of that flight yeah. or whatever. Or, and again, well, you send in- well, 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 we have a slightly different practice in that we don't allow bottles to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all beers are decanted into jugs. Uh, and we have a countback system to determine, uh, uh, tie breaks for equal scores to get to best of whatever or mini best of show. So really, it's only going to be open to a mini best of show if you've got a big flight in a category. Um, but yeah, I could I could see it being uh, uh, some issue, but we don't tend to recap bottles either. We we don't have traditional best of show type um, second round judges because um, it's just not viable for us. I judged in Australia once, and uh, as I recall, all the scores were in metric too. It was it was very confusing. I had to keep converting from imperial to metric scores. Yeah, you know, it, it uses digits, mm-hmm. binary digits. They were completely completely different than here in the U.S. It was very confusing. Oh, that's all I can say. So if if well, I offended well, anyone with my you- score sheets, it, that was the problem. Uh, you you would have had them in F, wouldn't you? And ours would have been in C. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Somebody asked me, Jamil, uh, from all the international judging I've done, uh, what was the worst category that I've judged in terms in terms of interpreting American styles? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Uh I think I'd have to say cream ale has been the worst category um, by and large. Very often here in the U.S. too. Yeah. Um, Often very buttery, you know, off flavors, Mm. um, heavy off flavors. Um, 
sour, contaminated sometimes. Um, it's almost like uh, cream ale is that catch-all category. They try to throw things in if they don't know where to enter it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I usually I, I haven't found much problem with in international competitions in interpreting American styles so much. Um, although I do remember in Argentina, oh, probably a decade ago, uh, there was uh, an IPA entered with, uh, you know, these new hops, the, you know, the new fruitier hops, the mosaics and so on. And uh, some of the judges were calling that out of style because it wasn't citrusy or piney. And it's like, no, I had to say, no, this is, this is an American IPA. This, these are the newer hops that are coming out. This is very much an American IPA. Um, but uh, I, th I think people are, are more keyed into American styles. Certainly, I've judged hazy IPAs all over the world now. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, yeah, for me, the, it just reminds me of the U.S., um, you know, a few years ago where yeah. you know, there was just a lot of really bad sour beers. You know, they were yeah, just yeah. not done right. Yeah. It was just like whatever tasted nasty, they entered it as a sour beer. It's like, no, 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 don't enter that. You know, just throw it away. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think for me, that was probably it overall. But, you know, the the international scene on on judging and brewing and all that has really you know, just leapfrog, you know, year after year. And just, it didn't take us long for the rest of the world to, you know, uh, uh, reach kind of the same level we were at and in some cases, you know, uh, surpass what we were doing. So um, I think people were slow to take it up uh, compared to the U.S. initially, but, you know, they very quickly uh, made up for that. Uh, and so now I don't know that, you really find, um, I, mean, I guess you got to, you know, be really doing like John and traveling <laughs> the third world, uh, you know, and, and riding a donkey to, uh, to the judging site to get, to get the, uh, to elephants. Find, We've done find, elephants. find something. I go places where there are planes, trains, and automobiles and, you know, and I'm staying in a four-star hotel. Those places, uh, it's, it's not an issue anymore, I think. Right, right. Let's see. Uh, James asks, uh, how readily available are U.S. hops in Australia? Is there any problems getting them as, as uh, homebrew supplies there? Uh, Peter, are there, is it hard to get U.S. hops in, in Australia? Nope. Oh, uh, we're, we're very lucky. We, um, uh, local homebrew shops uh, are well supplied. You know, you get occasional, uh, you know, hops that are, uh, this week's fad uh, that are in short supply. Uh, what's the latest one? Uh, you know, it's got a whole string of numbers on the end. Uh, okay. Idaho uh, 7, Hill 23. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, that, but but generally we, we get a um, uh, good range of malts from around the world and a good range of hops. Um, yeah, not an issue. One thing I've seen um, in a couple of countries is uh, there are brokers that are, you know, su supplying hops. The the a lot of the the hop growers and 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 uh, uh, the uh, 
hop consolidators here in the U.S. and the in the in the uh, Northwest, they are now starting to deal directly themselves with the international market, which has helped the international market. Prior to that, um, there's been some brokers that would buy whatever was the cheapest, crappiest version of yeah, Citra whatever's left over, and and resell that somewhere else. And it would be cheap, crappy Citra from five years ago that had been sat warm, and it was just really bad stuff. And I've had friends tell me, it's like, I'm like, well, what year Citra was it? And then they're like, well, year? It doesn't come with a year. It just says Citra. <laughs> it's like they don't, you know, they're, they're just being given whatever's left over because for a long time, you know, these, uh, the hop growers didn't want to deal with an international customer, worry about getting paid, how does it get shipped, all the, all the different issues, all the uh, issues with, uh, you know, agricultural, you know, shipments into a country. So I think that, uh, you know, that's gotten better, but uh, I think that was hurting a lot of people for a long time. And, and again, the places where John goes on a donkey to judge, uh, I'm imagining they're probably not getting the best hops in the world. I, I just, I'm just throwing that out there. I don't want to be negative towards any country, but I'm assuming the donkey does not have room once it's carrying John to carry much in the weight of hops. That's right. Yeah. No, I think, I think I've been, I've been very favorably impressed with American IPAs. Um, every every competition I've judged in the last couple of years, whether I'm in Norway, Mexico, Sweden, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, um, you know, Peru, all over. Um, yeah, these are all major countries with, you know, yeah. good infrastructure and the ability to, you know, get shipments in fresh ops and yeah. such. Sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting how popular American beer styles are around the world. Hazy IPA, American IPA, um, but also how popular the traditional German styles are. Hmm. I've, had, I've had some outstanding double box and, um, you know, some multi lagers and pilsners uh, that, you know, um, I, you know, it's like, wow, Jamil brew this? Because they were, they were that good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is though. I, I wouldn't say that there's any real third world country brewing countries these days. Um, everybody's, everybody's pretty darn good. I don't know. I, I've heard something about Djibouti and, uh, and <laughs> some of the things coming out of Djibouti. Well, don't know where that would be. Djibouti. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, uh, all the people in Djibouti. Yeah. Well, Matt asks, um, do you think competitive brewing made you a better brewer, Jamil? Uh, yes. Yeah, I do. Uh, because you were really trying to, again, it's a difference between brewing for yourself and brewing to, you know, impress others. And so trying to get, you know, your beers dialed in to, you know, one, the, the highest quality of brewing. Right. And I always believe the competitions are supposed to be brewing competitions, not style mm. competitions. Okay. But then also understanding everybody's, you know, flavor profile or their, their palates are different. Their understanding of the styles are different. 
And being able to tweak beers, you know, in uh, recipes to make them one way or another, you know, easily and, you know, and not have to brew it five times to get there. And towards the end, I was able to, you know, just go, well, all right, here's the recipe for this. And, you know, initially I was struggling with recipes and, you know, understanding all the ingredients towards the end. It's like in my sleep, I could come up with a recipe that, you mm -hmm. know, would have exactly the right signature I was looking for. So it was very easy to make those changes for me. And so I only had to brew them once and just enter them. Yeah. So that, that helped a lot. And, and if I, you know, and part of it was initially I didn't enter competitions to win anything. I wanted to know about my beer, whether it was good or not, because I was getting, you know, people that were telling me my, this is the best beer in the world and people telling me that the beer sucked horribly. I'm like, well, you know, I, I could have gone, retreated inside and said, well, I like it. That's all that matters. That's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, you know, I don't know that much about beer. I should, you know, seek a, you know, uh, a, a impartial third party to, to do this. And then I heard about competition. I'm like, okay. I'll do that. And then I got good feedback. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. That was from the Maltose Falcons from the Mayfair. That was the first thing I entered one beer, the chocolate uh -huh. is in a porter, and I got like third place. And I'm like, this is great information. I'm like, I'm going to enter it again and see if I can make changes to the beer to do better. So I did, and I got first place the next year. And so I'm like, oh, this is the way to really, you know, improve your brewing they'll send you this information and you make changes. And so I started doing that more and more. And that's all I wanted was not to win, but to, to be able to make better beer. And then I kind of got to a point where I was like, well, you know, I've pretty much, you know, I want to brew every style in the BJCP. And so I, I started doing that and then I'm like, well, okay, I need another challenge. So I, I just wanted to keep brewing and I want an excuse to keep brewing. And so then I was like, well, I need to get a first place in uh every style and so i did that and then i'm like okay i need to get a best of show in every style <laughs> so i had these you know goals i was working on that just you know gave me an excuse to keep brewing beer and keep tweaking and, and keep trying to improve things and so you know because of that there wasn't a time that i didn't learn something from every every batch i brewed so, yeah, I think competition brewing really did help me, really did make me a better brewer. Now, did your children, you know, encourage you by saying, Dad, we won't respect you unless you take a best of show in every category? Well, it's when they slap me, you know, that, <laughs> you know, for, for getting just, you know, for not getting best of show. That's when it yeah. really hurt. It hurt, yeah. it hurt me. Yeah. It hurt me. It hurt me in here. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is a silver, not a gold. Smack. <laughs> Actually... <laughs> One of the, the greatest things for my kids was, um, I, think, I, I think it was at the state fair competition one year. They were with me and because uh, uh, we were at, just running around the state fair and then we stopped the, our, our fair stuff to go by and, and sit in on the awards. And when the awards were called, they got to go up. I was like, go up and get oh, it for dad. Cool. And so they went up and they, they loved it. They're just like, wow, people are applauding. They're taking pictures. I mean, they were, nice. they were real young at the time. And so they, they just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Very nice. 
Let's see, here's a, uh, here's a technical question. Any tips for brewing great English ales? Oh, it's, that is about the ingredients um, above all, uh, you know, so malts. use, yeah, you got to use British malts. You use high quality British malts. Nobody else in the world is capable of making those malts taste the same. There's brilliant maltsters everywhere in the world that know exactly what they're doing. And it's something about, you know, the, the, where the malt is grown, where the grain's grown, how it's malted. It just has this intensity of flavor that is unique to British malts and British beers. And that, and then the yeast. You got to use the right yeast. You got to use the, the, right, uh, the right malts. You got to use the right pitching rates, the right temperatures. And you do all that correctly, and it, you, can, you can produce a beer that tastes just like some of these British examples. Nice. Um, Scott asks, what are your thoughts on decoction mashing for competition? Does it give you an edge? Uh, I never thought so. Okay. Um, yeah, I, th I think Harold would agree with that. Um, yeah, down in yeah. Uh, San Diego, Quaff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael Ferguson, he believes in, he believes in, uh, uh decoction. Yeah. Decoction. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, the thing about even step mashing, I don't believe in step mashing, uh, you know, the, the, the thinning out of the proteins, I, I'm just with modern malts. I'm not sure it really, really right. helps. Um, I've got, uh, friends that have done the blind, blind things. I, I talk about it doing, you know, just do two and then, you know, do a triangle test and tell if you can really tell the difference and if it's really, uh, you know, the decoction or not. Um, yeah. You know, if you enjoy doing it, then you should, I wouldn't worry about it for competition though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 50, 50 point Doppelbach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Formanek, 50 point Doppelbach. Yeah. There was no decoction involved. Not there even a go. step mash. <laughs> Here's a good question on Berliner Weiss. Um, he says, tips for brewing Berliner for comps. Usually it seems it needs to be a sour bomb and also lumped into other complex sours for metals. Um, and he says, go decoctionists. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, my perception of Berliner, and I'm interested in hearing your opinion too, Jamil, is Berliner needs to be a clean, light sour. Um, not a complex sour, not a not a wild American sour. Um, I think that people get, may have a misunderstanding about that. Well, you know, there's also, you know, some use of Brett in some uh, yeah. Berliners and, but, you know, but it's a subtle thing and uh, it's still, like you're saying, a fairly clean, um, not super clean, but clean. Uh, uh, light sour. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a light it's, style, 1035. Yeah. And it's not an aggressive sour. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, it's the same thing. You know, we, we are Americans. So if a little salt is, is good, a lot of salt <laughs> must be better. You know, a little hops is good. A lot of hops is better. And a little sour is good. A lot of sour is better. And so, um, you know, 
we we tend to drive the and it's it's like the earlier question Matt had about you know doing something bigger in a in a competition. If you have in a and I and I think part of what the the question is, it's like well in a sour category when they've lumped Berliner Weisses with. Uh, uh, sours or with yeah with a, you know a bunch of other sours and you have these very sour beers um you know you may get lost in in a category like that uh so it's you know do you want to make it a little more sour in order to have it stand out i'd be very careful on that because especially the better the judging the the worse that works for you you know, the, 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 the ideal thing is to always brew the best beer you can possibly brew. Um, and, you know, just have it balanced and delicious. Like uh, John was saying earlier, that's your, that's your major strategy. But, um, uh, you know, you know, and, and it just is what it is and you hope for good judging sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see what else we got here. Looking at recipes for winning IPAs for the past two years, it looks like hop additions and water chemistries are moving more and more towards omitting bittering hops and using more chlorides than sulfates. Do you think these changes are still within style or are NEPA's changing our view of what West Coast IPA should be? Mm, well, so I think there's still, you know, times when West Coast IPA in certain competitions where it's excruciatingly bitter and crisp and dry. Um, I've always kind of steered away from that. And, you know, the, like the beers you do here at Heretic, I make them softer and not as biting. They're still really bitter, but not as biting. And that's just the way I prefer them. And, you know, commercial brewing is a lot more about kind of what you prefer and what you think your customers will prefer. Um, so we've avoided that. And so I would say, you know, I could see people gravitating towards that water chemistry and that kind of, uh, you higher know, chloride. hopping and higher chloride, you know, less sulfates and, uh, um, mm -hmm. you know, making those, making those changes. So I, I could, I could see that happening. Um, you know, it's all, it's a, you know, it's a moving target styles and what people are, what their, you know, sense of them are. Yeah. Yeah. Good thought. Yeah, I it's a I think our I think our preferences and judges' preferences of what they look for in terms of their favorite IPAs is shifting. Um a lot of people, as you say, are looking for a softer, uh, juicier beer. Um but and again, you know, if you have experienced judges um, who know the difference, um, you know, and, and if the, if the category is, is broad, it's just IPA, you know, they're going to judge each bear on its own merit. doesn't matter if there's West coast versus hazy in there. Uh, they'll, they'll pick the beer at the best balance is the meddler. Mm -hmm. But, um, if you're entering a hazy in a West coast IPA category, uh, I think, I think these days, you know, there's a lot more experienced judges and the beer won't do as well. It'll probably be knocked down, you know, five, 10 points, uh, in that, in that particular category. Hey, you never know. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. It's 
been my experience the last last couple of years. All right, one last question. Okay, um, let's see what we got here. How do you feel your beers would compete in today's homebrew scene, Jamil? Oh, um, I think um, I think the the majority of them would do quite well. As I assume they're talking about uh, the beers you entered the, in competition twenty like, years ago, like brewing classic styles. Yeah, those recipes. Um, yeah, you know. The beers I brewed, you know, 20 years ago, they probably uh, would be getting a little stale by now. Uh, so <laughs> those probably wouldn't do very well. But uh, if I were to rebrew those same recipes today, I think they do very well because a lot of it, uh, you know, was based on just clean flavors and, you know, appropriate uh, to style. If you if you brew well, they do really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and people tell me they're, they're winning awards with those recipes all the time. So that's I think right. That, you know, clearly they're working. Part of it is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if everybody's brewing those similar recipes and entering them and then the judges are getting used to that and it becomes, it's like, okay, well that's what, you know, we've kind of helped define the style here. Um, so I think that would help. And, and the, the good thing is, you know, people worry about that and they go, well, you know, how is that, you know, the brewing competition? Well, it's a brewing competition because it's about the brewing. It's not about the recipe. It's, you know, if, if everybody brewed the same recipe, it's still a brewing competition. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the difference between taking the, you know, it's like you can take a hundred chefs all give them exactly the same ingredients and, and recipe. And those hundred dishes would all taste different. Some of them would be closer together as to what was intended and be really good. And some would be really horrible and some would be, you know, and some would really stand out as just fantastic. So, uh, you know, that, that I think, you know, is, is part of it. So yeah, I I think, I think they do, uh, do quite well. And then, there's uh, some newer styles that, you know, uh, commercially we're already doing. So I think uh, what I'd like to do is, is do a, uh, a, new, a new version of, of Brewing Classic Styles or a new, new uh, recipe book and, and, you know, update it with yeah. all my current thinking and, and new recipes and hitting all the new styles. I'd love to That'd get that. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody. This was a blast. I enjoyed, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, this. spending time with everybody. And you guys, are, I, I'll tell you this also: this CIA, this uh, Cane Island Ailers, they are one of the best behaved uh, as far as like microphones and stuff like that. They, the 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 five four or five meetings I've been in, they really do a great job of not trodden over each other. And being respectful, but, you know, still having fun and interchanging. And it's a pretty good-sized crowd. So uh, I've just been uh, very impressed with them. So thank you, first off, for letting me in to your first meeting. And now that you haven't been able to get rid of me for five weeks, you know, I'm like a cockroach. I ain't going nowhere. (laughs) Like I told you guys this before. And uh, uh, so thanks for doing that. And this is like uh, John and I's first a zoom a brew strong uh episode. hopefully we'll do so, more yeah we want to we want to see uh maybe we'll maybe we'll uh 
make a make a regular habit of this because this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, please, everybody that's listening, please support our sponsors, uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. Uh, you know, he really has been paying for the show for a good 13 plus years yep. uh, faithfully and has never, uh, you know, not paid for it so that uh, you all could listen. Uh, so I, I think it deserves at the very least a uh, thank you email saying, you know, thank you. Cause in, and anybody who's listening, those archives are there for free for, you know, that's a ton of stuff. It's like a thousand hours worth of stuff at this point. Uh, so really, really deserves our thank you. And yes, uh, he makes some good equipment. Absolutely he does. Uh, and he's just a nice guy that wants to support uh, brewing uh, in general. So, uh, and if you ever see him at the conference, if we ever have a conference in person again, make sure to uh, to say hi to him. And uh, if you got questions for Bruce Strong, uh, you can email us at brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. Uh, just uh, preface it with question and all that. And we won't answer them by email, but we will answer them on the air eventually. We got through quite a few of them uh, over the years. And we'll yeah. do that. All right. So, uh, Bruce Strong, everybody. Bruce Strong. Take care.